0: And this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science.
1: To, uh, another episode of DataCast and today I have the pleasure to interview Sarah Hooker. Um, Sarah Hooker is a researcher at Google Brain uh, doing deep learning research on reliable explanation of model prediction for black box models. Uh, her main research interests gravitate towards interpretability, model compression and security. Uh, in 2014 she founded Data Analytics, a nonprofit dedicated to bringing Technical capacity to help nonprofits across the world use machine learning for good. She grew up in Africa, in Mozambique, Lesotho, Switzerland, South Africa, and Kenya. Uh, her family now lives in Monrovia, Liberia. So, uh, Sarah, uh, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, James. Thank you for the invite. It's lovely to to be with uh, be with you on this Sunday morning in quarantine. <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, I hope you're doing well in quarantine. So um, let's start our conversation talking a little bit about your upbringing. So uh, as we uh, we just mentioned, you grew up in Africa across you know various countries. Um, so how would you describe your childhood?
2: Mm, so it's interesting. Uh, in retrospect, it seems unusual, but at the time, it was just my childhood. So. Um, In many ways it was just my normal but my parents met in Sudan so my mom was a teacher my dad was a mechanical engineer um, and they both went to volunteer in Sudan to teach English and they met there Um, and my mom continues to teach actually so now she teaches other teachers in Liberia Uh, but they ended up traveling considerably so we moved uh, quite a lot as I grew up Um, I think that my childhood, in some ways, when I say that I moved to so many different countries and changed schools so many times, people, <laughs> people tend to react like, Oh, wow, how is that possible? What were your parents thinking? But to us, it was very normal. We were just, um, my, my mom in particular was working with different groups of teachers and she was focusing on how to develop national curriculums. And so when she moved to a different project, we would just move with her. Um, but I would say it was, uh, uh, very privileged upbringing in some senses, because I, I experienced a lot of different things. And also, it gave me a, tr- a, a sense of who I am. <laughs> I feel that often when you move, you you distill the essence of who you are, because things may change, but you don't. So it gave me a, a sense of strength, um, which has continued to carry with me.
1: Thanks for sharing that. So you then went to the US to study um, economics and international relations at um, Carlton College. So um how was your college experience, especially in a liberal arts environment?
2: oh yeah this is an excellent question um so carlton was an unusual choice for me so my last two years of of high school i was actually accepted to um, a school in swaziland which is a fantastic school waterford camp lava and waterford is part of a you know united world college network but um it was also one of the first integrated schools in southern africa so nelson's mandela's grandchildren went there. And it was just an incredible place. And it was the first time that I was exposed to the idea that you could go to school in the US. (laughs) So we had a few colleges from the US come to visit us in Swaziland. And one of them was Carlton College, which People, you know, may not be familiar, but Carleton is a tiny school in Minnesota. Um, and so it was the only time they've gone. <laughs> so that was the year I was there. They haven't returned since, which I hope is not a reflection on me, but uh, perhaps they, they're just trying to visit many different other places around the world. But it was a very serp- uh, uh meeting because I met the the director of admissions and it was we had an amazing chat and then I thought why wouldn't I apply to the US so I it's I ended up doing we did the SATs and we were prepping for it I guess two weeks before because we were mainly focused on the international baccalaureate which seems bizarre to other students who who are in the US where the SATs their main focus um, but then they gave me a full scholarship which was incredible and so it was almost like how can I say no um, and it was so when I came to Minnesota in 2008 that was my first experience of the US and of the school I kind of arrived sight unseen (laughs) which is uh, I guess bonkers in retrospect but it was so so incredible as an experience it was an incredible experience of a very different size of America the Midwest people were so gracious and so welcoming But it was also just such a different notion from what I imagined in my mind, because I grew up, perhaps as many international students do, with watching American TV shows. So I watched Friends and uh, The O.C. and Beverly Hills. So in my mind, I thought America was some like weird concatenation of like New York. And LA, <laughs> and in fact, uh, when I arrived at Carlton Carlton's in the small village, of, I call it a village. It's a small town. It's a very quaint town, historical town, about forty minutes out of 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 Minneapolis. So it's entirely different, um, but in the best way possible. It was it was really like a wonderful four years.
1: I actually can relate pretty well to this because I uh, I did my undergrad at another liberal arts liberal arts college as well. So uh, also a small town in uh, Ohio and uh, my, my, my understanding well at least from my own experience is that you know in a liberal arts curriculum you have to um, you kind of have to take classes from all kind of department and and, um, and you kind of get exposed to as as broad of an education as possible and that, that way you know do for whole your four years you kind of happen uh, at least an exposure from a variety of discipline I was wondering if that is something that um, you kind of go to the same thing I can't, I can't. yeah and
2: I love that I uh, uh, it's interesting because I actually didn't know what liberal arts was when I arrived I guess I, I didn't know that it was different so when I chose Carlton uh, I chose it assuming that every college in the U.S. was liberal arts and now I understand it's quite different um, but it was just wonderful it was it was I came in with a very strong notion of what I wanted to do which was economics and I left with that strong notion of what I wanted to do which was economics But I was so cool to like sample all these odd obscure like areas of knowledge like I did French cinema <laughs> which was amazing um, actually fun fact the first ever uh, film moving film was a French film it's called journey to the moon and so it just exposed me to all these interesting ways of like how do we visualize an intersection between technology and film so things like that I mean I'm not sure if you have your favorite class it's not computer science because I know now you're studying computer science but I imagine you also had uh, like a, a class that kind of changed you or made you think differently that wasn't in your core area
1: yeah definitely uh, I take a lot of classes in like you said like cinema and and you know arts and, and stuff like that which is just which is cool because you know it it brings out like other side of your personality yeah so so you talk a little bit about economics so after college you um you moved to the Bay Area and worked as an um, economics analyst at uh, Compass Lexicon which is in Economic consulting firm for two years. So, I guess, you know, what motivated you to make this decision and what types of uh, projects that you work on?
2: Yeah, uh, this is a very good question because I guess it's uh, the first step in me uh, arriving at where I am now, which is somewhere quite different. But as I mentioned, I came into college really interested in in doing economics mainly because my dream at the time was I wanted to work for eventually the World Bank as an economist and a lot of that was rooted in my upbringing I think a lot of a lot of what I was frustrated with growing up was this idea that oftentimes uh, in in certain communities that I grew up in it's very hard to change uh, the underlying conditions because of the macro conditions that for example uh, trade and in in certain parts of Africa, has been really determined by. Uh export fluctuations in price and so it's continually hard to improve upon wealth stores because you're always uh tied to the to the price of the dollar like no matter where i grew up in africa the dollar was huge um and so it was this fascination with like how do we shift these macro elements that made me really want to explore being an economist i mean also to some degree it's because that was the only technical person that i saw growing up a lot of what i what i saw was so, um, uh, the International Monetary Fund, uh, or the World Bank sending individuals to try and uh, so-called fix things. And so in my mind, that was the levers that you could technically think about problems. So all that being said is that I came into my undergraduate with a strong sense that I wanted to do economics. And when I left, I wanted to have an experience before grad school in economics, which was thinking about how economics intersects with real world data. Um, And Compass Lexicon was an amazing first job. So it's, uh, it looks at antitrust cases. And so it works with um, economists at at UC Berkeley and also the Department of Justice and the DOJ. And it's looking at particularly like, how do we, um, how, how do we identify and quantify the harm done in the case of antitrust. Um, And there's many different variations of antitrust, but a lot of the projects that I was looking at was kind of thinking about um, if there's the presumption of some type of anti-competitive behavior, how do you evaluate what that possible harm is to the consumer? and I adored it, but at the same time, I started to get experience in other areas because I was in the Bay. And so that was kind of the beginning of me realizing that uh, I loved economics in part because I hadn't experienced computer science and machine learning. <laughs> as soon as I started experiencing more of those areas, it was almost like a, an immediate obsession. <laughs> I just knew I wanted to explore those further.
1: After two years uh, in 2015, you, you moved to Udemy, which is um, a very popular uh, online learning platform, um, you know, which I, I pretty much have experience with as well. So um, at, at Udemy, you work on um, spam detection and recommendation algorithms from, you know, other ways from building models to deploying them at school. So um, can you talk more about sort of your learnings at Udemy?
2: So that was really the part of this, uh, I guess, key inflection point in my career where I decided that I didn't want to do a PhD in economics anymore. And a lot of that was because being in the Bay, I started to, and in particular, I had started a nonprofit at the time called Delta. And so we were working on a lot of projects with other nonprofits that were using increasingly machine learning. And it was almost as if a light switch went off in my head where I I really felt I love doing this so much. This gives you so much uh, interesting tools to try and model the world around you and it made me realize I wanted to get more experience modeling complex real world data. Um, and Udemy was really another, <laughs> uh, this will sound, uh, repetitive, but it was another incredible job mainly because they took a big bet on me. So I joined Udemy as a data analyst and at first I was, uh, working mainly on internal models, but not deploying them into production. So not external facing. And I, transferred into the engineering org within Udemy. Um, the director and the VP of engineering supported me. And so I was in the machine learning team within engineering and that's where I started working on the SPAM model that you mentioned and the recommendations model and and that was very satisfying because you work on uh, essentially the whole end-to-end problem you both devise a model as well as you deploy it and it's a very different type of uh, modeling than if you're you're creating internal tools because you have the constraint of scale you're serving in the case of Udemy, Udemy is this online educational problem platform and it serves uh, millions and millions of students every day. It's very, very popular. And so anything that you deploy has to be able to model at scale, very different latency requirements. And so it was a fascinating experience. It taught me an incredible amount about engineering and about real world problems uh, and and what machine learning solutions work for real world problems.
1: Yeah. And, and I guess just want to uh, extrapolate more, more on that point. So, uh, you know, during this period, in order to grow as an engineer, you, uh, I believe you also like took part-time like, classes at uh, the H- Academy, which is, um, I guess, an engineering school for, for women to, to increase representation in tech. Um, and, you know, overall, all, I, I, I believe you take a lot of time just, just to kind of like learn on your own, being, being a self-taught engineer. How would this upskilling period look like for you?
2: Brute force. <laughs> I call this the the hustling uh, part of my career where I just wanted it so badly. And I feel like uh, that period in particular, I knew what I wanted and I threw everything. I was very lucky to have a supportive partner, my husband, and uh, I basically would get up before work and study and I would work after work <laughs> uh, and uh, you mentioned Hackbrite. so I did do a uh, uh, part-time evening classes at HackBrite, but I would say the major 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 uh, inflection point in terms of skill upgrade was when my director and VP allowed me to transfer internally because up, leading up to that point I've been doing HackBrite classes but It's very hard. So self-taught engineering, um, it really is brute force. You have to have a a very uh, kind of picture in your mind of what you want to achieve. And basically, what I always recommend is that the picture in your mind should just be getting you to the point where you can do it full time. (laughs) Because as soon as you start doing it full time, that's when you really see the gains and technical experience. Um, But it was a very painful period because it's a part of learning where you kind of get good enough to know what to ask, but there's so many questions you still need to ask. And uh, ideally, you do it for long enough where you transition into the second part where you're starting to be a domain expert, at least in some areas, so that while there's still a huge amount that's unknown, you have your niches, which uh, give you some element of confidence in your craft. Um, and that was Udemy for me. <laughs> uh, again, it was a combination of uh, brute force, but also I had institutional um, advocates who really gave me the opportunity to to make it more sustainable.
1: Thanks for sharing that um, story. Yeah, I, I, so I just want to circle back to um, you know data analysis a little bit. So you. Um, you know back in 2014, you founded Delta, uh, which is um, a nonprofit community of um, data scientists, engineers, and economists and the organization is entirely volunteer run and uh, believes in using data for good. Um, you know what is the premise behind this uh, initiative?
2: Oh, well, I think you hinted at it, <laughs> which is that it's uh, data for good, but perhaps the question is how. So we have two programs. So this was started at the end of 2013, so six, six seven years ago. And it was started really when I first graduated. It was me and three other economists at the time. Um, and we decided to just get together on the weekends and start thinking about this. How can we use our skills to bridge what nonprofits need? So at the time, that evolved into the Data Fellows Program. So the Data Fellows Program uh, brings together, now, engineers, data data scientists, researchers uh, from all over the Bay Area, from uh, all, the, all the big tech companies, many, uh, many uh, very, very accomplished organizations and pairs them with nonprofits. And so each year we, we select a group of nonprofits. We've done probably, I think we're at 48 engagements today where we've worked with a, a, a wide spectrum of nonprofits helping to solve their problem. And we do it in a very time intensive way. So we spend six months with each of these nonprofits, uh, pairing data fellows with them. Three years ago, we started a new program, which I'm currently leading, which is the Delta Teaching Fellows. Um, And the Delta Teaching Fellows is really a kind of long-term solution. So Data Fellows bridges the skill gap. With the Teaching Fellows, we hope to build technical capacity within communities so that we no longer need to bridge the skill gap. And what that looks like is that we teach machine learning fundamentals all over the world. And this year, we have global Teaching Fellows who are all over the world who are, who are setting up virtual classrooms in their communities. Uh, and really, the the goal is, is that eventually the Data Fellows will not be needed because <laughs> we put we will have built domain experts within communities who can help. Um, But that's a very long way away, because unfortunately, technical talent is not really correlated uh, with where the problems are right now. In fact, it's very correlated with geographical concentration. There's a few hubs, where there's a lot of technical talent. Um, And so we have a long way to go to help uh, make sure that where, where the problems are is where we also have a concentration of technical ability. Um, You mentioned it's volunteer run. That's really important. It still is. And so everyone gives their time outside their full-time jobs, which is kind of crazy for an organization with, the impact that we've had, uh, because it really is due to our community. We have a very tight-knit community and people who give an incredible amount of themselves and their time to help um, nonprofits and to teach. Uh,
1: brilliant. So I, I just want to dis- discuss, you know, a couple of like specific projects that you work on, you know, at data, especially in uh, some of the earlier years, you know, a particular one uh, you work on is with, um, Aneza Education, which is a Kenyan tech company that uh, enables access to education via low-cost mobile phones, uh, and you know, in particular, the goal of the project is to empower students to uh, access quizzes by mobile texting in Kenya. And you know, I also got a chance to watch your presentation, you keep about it at the um, ODSC West 2016. Can you you know describe this work uh, in, in more detail?
2: Yeah, this is a trip down memory lane 2016. <laughs> um, yeah, that was a fantastic project. So, Inezza, it's run by Cargo. Um, and at the time, his co founder, oh, I'm forgetting her name, um, but uh, it's a very interesting uh, project for two reasons. And I'll say um, both is one, they're actually not a nonprofit, they're a social impact org. And we chose to work with them because we believe that uh, they have a huge positive impact. Um, And the reason being is that they're working with, at the time, I believe it was like four million students in East Africa, but it's it's much more now. Uh, And they are working with primary and secondary students as a text-based service uh, to, to 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 really like. Learn in anticipation of exams. And so students would answer quizzes uh, via text message. And critically, it worked for pre smartphone technology. And why do I say that? Because, uh, in fact, although mobile use is, is really high across Africa. In fact, most of Africa has leapfrogged the computers on phones. A lot of phones are, are pre-smartphone. <laughs> and so uh, reach is really, really critical to cater for pre-smartphone technology. And so this had a huge accessible uh, base of students who could use it. Uh, and, uh, you know, my first point was really that they were not a nonprofit social impact. I strongly believe that we should work on the problems which are most important when we bridge this skill gap. And that is often nonprofits, but sometimes it's social impact orgs who are filling a a critical need and have a high positive impact. Um, And so I bring attention to that because um, I, I, I think that saying that data for good is just working with nonprofits is not the full story. We really want to work on any problem that has a huge positive social impact that's underserved. The second reason why this is, was an interesting project was the task itself. So the task was we wanted to be able to tailor the text messages and the quiz content to the student level of ability. And so students would often use a in order to prepare for exams. Could we tailor the difficulty? And also, what did we learn from the data itself? Because in fact, the data was very revealing about how people are using technology. For example, the data use would spike in the evening. Uh, do you have an idea of why?
1: So, I mean, I assume, you know, <laughs> spending evening means that there's more usage in the evening. Uh, the first thing that comes up to my mind, just like maybe students you know, are more active in the evening. But um, I suppose there's many other factors that may, you know, maybe like some, something with a connection mobile phone or something with the, with the provider. I, I assume that, yeah.
2: So, uh, it's interesting. It's actually because a lot of these are like single cell phone per household. Uh, so like, because the the cell phones with the adult during the day, it's passed the children at night to practice. And so uh, it really says something about how families are using this technology. In fact, when Inezza realized this, they start creating quizzes for adults because they realized that adults might want to do this during the day. if There was like pre- quizzes on like financial health or things like that. Um, and there was that, but there was also where students were using it. So because this was tailored towards primary and secondary school exams, there'd be huge spikes in use just before the exams. <laughs> and uh, it's, it, it was a fascinating project because a lot of it was leveraging data, real-world data, across millions of students in order to tailor an individual experience for the better. Um, and so that's what we ultimately worked on with them.
1: Um, yeah, awesome. And then uh, another, I think, fascinating project that you work on that I want to uh, quickly touch by is with um, Rainforest Connection, which is an organization that collects and deploys recycled cells to rainforests around the world. And more specifically, you know, uh, you know, based on my understanding, your team have identify illegal deforestation using steam audio from the rainforest. Uh, and actually, you've talked about it at uh, MLCon Seattle 2017. So, uh, you know, would you mind going over this work as well?
2: So, uh, another <laughs> excellent memory, Dan, <laughs> walked down memory lane. So, Rainforest Connection, uh, when they came to us, we partnered with them in 2017. they since partnered with, I actually believe they partnered with Google, and now there's a few engineers there that are helping them, um, I believe, full time. Um, but when they partnered with us through Delta, uh, it was interesting, we were helping them solve two problems. So one is, is that their main goal is to use recycled cell phones uh, in the rainforest and to use it to send alerts to conservationists when there's illegal deforestation. And what that entailed as a, as a modeling task is actually identifying when there is chainsaw noises. Uh, and when you detect a chainsaw noise, that's when you send an alert. Uh, there's many complexities to this problem from a technical standpoint. So firstly, you have to uh, convert the audio to spectrograms. Uh, secondly, you're training a convolutional neural network at the time to identify whether it's a chainsaw spectrogram or not. Um, and then uh, you're trying to uh, ascribe a level of certainty, like are you confident it's in fact what you've predicted before sending an alert? And you're doing this for multiple different rainforests, which may have slightly different distributions. So you have distribution shift. Uh, And so for for someone who loves machine learning, this is like a fantastic project to think about all the complexities of training on a, a sample of data and then deploying to a slightly different distribution. Um, And that's what we did. Uh, And in fact, uh, one of the interesting things was that we we added on as additional component of analysis is that we were trying to also understand how do you triangulate sound? So let's say an alert is sent uh, from a cell phone. In fact, the circumference around that cell phone can be quite wide in which a sound could happen. And so uh, uh, it's hard to give precise coordinates. And so another idea that we were trying to help them with was if you had multiple radios within a certain proximity of each other, can you triangulate the distance? So can you make it more precise, the coordinates that you send um, to the conservationist? Uh, which is another <laughs> fairly complex and interesting challenge. Uh, so Sean McPherson, who's currently at Intel, he led the initiative on that component and he did a fantastic job.
1: Great, yeah, thanks for you know, kind of going a little bit into the detail. And I think uh, you know it's great to hear that most of these project that you work on at Delta have a um, significant um, social impact in this case. You wrote a very top-broken blog post, uh, roughly two years ago, titled um, Why Data for Good Likes Precision, uh, in which you described sort of four criteria frequently used to qualify an initiative as data for good, and also sort of um, discussed some of the open challenges associated with each. Um, So, you know, can you uh, unpack this article for the audience?
2: That was actually the first blog post I wrote. Uh, and I, I believe I wrote it because I had reached a critical mass of grumpiness. <laughs> so I felt I've only written two blog posts to date, and each has been because I've reached a critical mass of grumpiness about a topic. Uh, and in this case, the grumpiness was that we were using data for good in a way that is imprecise as a term. So data for good, of course, when we are communicating to a broad audience, uh, it's okay to use data for good. It's, it's uh, a... Uh, An exciting way to talk about the angle which is hopefully positive impact But my my grumpiness was that when we talk to each other as a technical audience And particularly if we're trying to measure progress on how we're using technology We need a much more precise language because in fact data for good is often used to label initiatives which may be counterproductive to our angle and uh, we need to articulate who we're serving Uh, and what is the intent of how we're allocating resources in order for us to be held accountable for what is the best, most effective way to allocate resources. Uh, you mentioned the four groupings. I believe it was talking about the four ways people conventionally talk about data for good. Uh, I'd have to go back in my memory, but uh, the data for good is often used in very different ways. So (laughs) it's often uh, used, for example, to describe data for good corporate software giving programs, which I think is a very perhaps poor use of data for good because it implies that this is a solution. And in fact, giving software or giving, you know, subsidized uh, compute to nonprofits is actually uh, often not really what nonprofits need. Nonprofits who are working in the data for good space often really need someone to bridge the skill gap. So throwing software at them is often, It's a huge time sink for them to to invest in how to use the software. And also, it doesn't solve the underlying problem, which is technical skill gap. Uh, And uh, for me, these are Band-Aid measures. Uh, There's other ways which people like to give, which is, for example, uh, bridging the skill gap. Uh, And I I think that's one of the most important ways that we can ultimately give is... uh, providing some of the technical concentration of talent that we have in places like the Bay Area to nonprofits. But even here, there's good ways and there's less good ways. For example, hackathons are something that I frankly don't endorse unless they're set up in a very uh, very thoughtful way. Why? Because hackathons are often one day and the nonprofit has to spend a huge amount of time preparing the data. And hackathons tend to incentivize complex solutions not necessarily uh, sustainable solutions and then afterwards the nonprofit is left with a bunch of fancy package solutions, but they're not really implemented in their data system. There's no way that they can easily integrate it. And uh, that's it. <laughs> so unless a hackathon is well set up to uh, segue people into long-term volunteering, it ends up being more for the people who attend the hackathon than it does for the nonprofit. And that's unfortunate in my eyes. Uh, uh, the reason I bring up these examples is not to chastise or say, this is a hero, this is a villain. It's to say that we need to talk about the impact in more precise terminology than just data for good, and and also we really need to talk about who we're serving. Uh, it's not enough to uh, to simply label something data for good as an event and that's your data for good for the year. We need to put actual resources behind these initiatives. And those resources are often not free software, but they're lending out your employees, they're uh, investing in bridge programs for the nonprofit. These are more costly, but they're more impactful. And until we have a more precise vocabulary to talk about this, we're always gonna end up with these higher level surface Band-Aid solutions, because that will be considered a job done.
1: Right, and I guess you also kind of hinted a little bit earlier when you know you uh, you talk about that uh, that teaching fellowship, when you know uh, you know you guys try to um, essentially teach the people within the community to kind of learn those uh, technical skills so they can uh, develop their own expertise and serve their, their own communities, right? And moving from a solution more into an educational program, like you mentioned, is is certainly something that uh, that takes you know takes some effort and it's going it to require certain dedication. Um, what from the
2: precisely. Yeah. yeah, precisely, James. It's much less glamorous because <laughs> you're building a long. You're you're building the ultimate solution, which is what you're really doing is you're you're empowering people to solve these decisions themselves. But that is much longer. And it's not, you can't, it's not a single event with free food. <laughs> so people shy away from it. But it's really what is needed if we're going to talk about uh, solving these problems. And again, I don't see enough people doing that. Um, there's a lot of people who are doing hackathons or panels or workshops at conferences that talk about data for good. But there's less backbone for, for investing in these long-term pro- programs. And that has to change.
1: I see. And, and just one quick note, um, besides data analytics, was say any other uh, programs or organization that are also kind of uh, uh, pushing along that that, that uh, ideal solution that you uh, also, I guess, recommend for people who, who are interested in uh, taking part in?
2: So I do think that there are um, much more, I, I'm going to call these community building initiatives. So if the goal is to build capacity within communities, there's amazing conferences that have sprung up over the last few years that have really created the community for the first time. For example, the Deep Learning in Daba, Uh, for example, uh, the Southeast Asia uh, Machine Learning Conference, for example, Kipu. These are all uh, conferences which have only just started to originate but uh, bringing together talented people for the first time. And that's the first foundational step to building uh, expertise within region and not having to import it from other places. So I think that that type of effort is very commendable. In terms of data for good, I do think these scientifically, uh, these broader research efforts, so one area I do think is underserved is we just need more research labs with funding to work on applied problems. So for example, climate change, or for example, leveraging satellite imagery. These are problems which are underserved, but have high potential impact, and uh, giving resources to organizations who work on this uh, is very impactful. So efforts from Mila, Mila set up a data for good uh, subgroup, and I believe that they're working on climate change. That is very encouraging because uh, this is another area of data good for good that has kind of fallen by the wayside is we need long-term research investment for research problems that are underserved by other by other funding sources.
1: Yeah, awesome. And uh, I, I'm sure to include some of those links and resources that you mentioned in the show notes so people can you know, I guess uh, take a look at them where, if, if they're interested in being a part of uh, these initiatives. And um, so in, in 2017, you got accepted into the uh, AI residency program at Google Brain, which uh, trains and supports the next generation of deep learning researcher. Um, and so your, your other blog post at this point, um, titled Slow Learning, uh, which reflects on your narrative journey leading up to that point. So. Um, What could be the main takeaway that you want readers to get out of reading it?
2: Oh, slow learning? Uh, So the premise of that job, but like I said job, I mean blog post, (laughs) job post. Uh, The premise of that blog post was an article was written about me and The Economist. And the article... uh, because of the in some ways I sense the nature of the Economist, it's short articles, but it had a fairly dramatic <laughs> takeaway, which is that I attended fast.ai and then ta-da, I entered into a Google Brain residency program. And I didn't want that to be the takeaway because I think there are so many people right now who are working incredibly hard to improve themselves, to study, to to pursue their individual dream of working in machine learning. And I didn't want people to think that if you talk, took a six-week course, then that was the finish line. Uh, and that if you took a six week course and you didn't get that, that, that was your fault. So uh, it was really adding nuance to my journey to say that yes, I did do uh, programs like Fasted AI, which are by the way, fantastic. Jeremy and Rachel are incredible educators. I recommend this program to anyone thinking about machine learning. Uh, But there was also a lot of story that came behind that. There was a lot of nights and mornings where I was by myself and pushing myself. And I I think that whenever we try and do reductionist and Norella tales of what makes someone successful, we end up focusing on what came immediately before. (laughs) But the truth is is that success is rarely... um, instantaneous. In fact, so much of it is our cumulative just will to persist and to continue studying something and to have a a sense of grit. And that was really the point of the blog post, is that for any student who's starting out on this journey, it's really a single instant that determines your outcome. It's much more likely that there are many uh, peaks and hills along the way and that you have to find your inner strength. And still, is this what you really want to do? Because ultimately, I think the, the commonality between myself and the colleagues I work with is that... I believe that all of them are deeply passionate about what they do and are very driven by answering the questions. And that's often why they made it, not necessarily because they're the most brilliant people, they're very smart people, but it's more to do with how you manifest your drive over very long periods of time. And that was a reminder. it's, It's really about my journey, but also it's about what I think people coming into this field should understand.
1: I see. Yeah. Thanks for kind of, you know, um, emphasizing on, 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 on those, those key parts. I think, uh, you know, a part of the quote from your course, that I think that i kind of summed it up very nicely said that, um, uh, part of preparing people to succeed is to be candid about how challenging it can be and how many fellows there are along the way. So, you know that that one is it's kind of you know emphasize the importance. Uh, like I said, you know, being persevere and kind of brute force through that whole process, trust uh, the process, and kind of detach from the outcome. Uh, I, I think that uh that uh that that's something that you know, uh, you know, any you know someone who want to work in, in research or get into mission and definitely uh, should, should should remember and um, it seems like that that same thing that goes along with your experience as well. Yeah. So. Um, so, you know, you're part of Google AI and um, I, I want to kind of switch our conversation into, um, you know, your research. And I think that's, uh, you know, a lot of things that you've been working on since, uh, you know, uh, three years ago, uh, almost three years ago. And so your, your early research at, at Google Brain focused on um, interpretability. And uh, your first paper is called um, The Unreliability of Salency Methods. So uh, based on my, my reading, the papers uh, argues that um, saliency methods are not reliable enough to explain model predictions. And then the paper also proposed a three-step roadmap for reliable interpretability. Um, you know, I'm just curious, what are the motivations as well as the uh, experimental results behind this paper?
2: Let's take a step back uh, and maybe I'll talk a little bit about what interpretability looks like in deep learning right now. Like what are even saliency maps? <laughs> um, so, uh, interpretability in deep learning uh, has become increasingly urgent because there's widespread use of deep neural networks in the real world. They, it's been a very successful technical breakthrough, and now, as increasingly it's being used in real world applications, uh, a lot of the question is when can we have certainty about the results? And in particular, most importantly, in very sensitive domains, such as if you use it in healthcare to aid doctor diagnosis, if you use it in credit card scoring, if you use it in self driving cars. these are domains where if something, if the model is incorrect, you could have potentially an intolerable impact on human welfare. And this is really the domain that interpretability work focuses on. And I would suggest that the main goal of interpretability research within deep learning is to provide uh, intuition to the end user, whoever that end user is. It could be a machine learning researcher, it could be the doctor, it could be the end consumer and uh, that should be give them more sense of the decision boundary of the model but it also that what intuition that whole description means it should be meaningful to the person uh they should be able to take something out of it that's meaningful that provides some some additional piece of information about that how the model behavior is working but critically it should also be reliable because here is the the crux of the problem is that if you have an interpretability method which is not reliable you're almost compounding the problem <laughs> because you have a model which uh, people uh, may consider a black box or they have very low trust in. And then you have an interpretability method, which is providing an unreliable explanation. And so you've distorted the information further and you may in fact lead to very incorrect assumptions about model behavior, which can compound the problem. And a lot of my research to date, including this paper has been on how do we measure reliability because if if we can't measure reliability, we're almost worse off than when we started. And measuring reliability in interpretability methods in particular is quite tricky. Why? Because, if we didn't uh, <laughs> the fact that we need an interpretability method in the first place tells us we don't really know what the underlying behavior is so this is almost like a, a classification problem where there's no ground truth label we don't know what's actually important to the model so we're using interpretability method but because we don't know what's important to the model we can't really tell the interpretability method whether it's correct or wrong so we have to design very clever experiments to identify What are points of failure? Where is the model clearly unreliable? And this is the unreliability of saliency methods is one such piece of work. Uh, And saliency methods are a particular type of interpretability method that produce like an estimate of the contribution of each input pixel. So consider this a computer vision problem to the output prediction. And in computer vision problems, people often like visualizing these saliency methods. So they visualize the, the, the estimated contribution. It, it kind of uh, feels intuitive to humans. It looks like a heat map. Uh, So if you're listening to this right now, I suggest you look it up, (laughs) it will give you a good sense of what we're talking about. Um, And so that was Sun Reliability and Methods. We designed one such failure point, and we showed that a lot of very popular methods don't pass this failure point, which is the first step. And I always say, science is about a few different components. It's not just about identifying new methods, it's it's also about uh, identifying empirically behavior that leads to methods to fix that behavior. And this was that first step, is that we identified a failure point that broke a lot of popular existing methods. And since then, uh, many subsequent works have come out to try and fix this in different ways.
1: I see, I see. And yeah, I would love to talk, uh, you know, about those subsequent work that you you just mentioned. Um, You know, that, that following work is a paper called benchmark for interpret- interpretability methods in deep neural networks. And in this one, you know, you and you, your college proposed an empirical measures of the approximate accuracy, efficient pattern estimate in deep neural networks. And the acronym for this one is called um, remove and retrain. So, uh, I guess, you know, what, what do you hope to achieve with this benchmark, uh, especially for uh, the interpretability research community?
2: This is in the very much the same vein as the first, work. Uh, it goes one step further. So this work, uh, the benchmark on interpretability methods, was saying that in order to understand whether some what has been identified is actually important, because remember, all these saliency methods are trying to estimate what input pixels are most important to prediction. In order to understand what is truly most important, you have to actually try and retrain the model on only the pixels that are being identified as important. And why is this crucial? Because really, in order for something to be reliable, we need to understand if it's representing what the model thinks is important. And in particular, uh, our goal, our ultimate goal is to be reliable to the model's perception of the distribution and the model behavior. And, And so unless we retrain, we frankly won't be able to say anything meaningful about whether it is actually important to the model or not. And so the whole remove and retrain was a, a recommended benchmark, and it's actually a very important benchmark because it's saying that any new saliency method is proposed. If you cannot remove what is being identified as most important and beat a random benchmark, which is randomly removing, <laughs> then you're no better than random. And this is important because these explainability methods are going to be used in very sensitive domains to try and explain model behavior. Mm -hmm. So if you can't beat a random guess about what is important, it's unclear whether there's any uh, justification to having these methods in use. And that is remove and retrain. It is uh, that combined with unreliability of saliency methods. I would also suggest another fantastic paper is Checks for Saliency Methods by... Uh, Julius Abadayo and some other colleagues from Brain. Uh, Those three are part of, I would say, what has started a wave of of new research, thinking about how do we measure the reliability of interpretability methods.
1: Mm, I see, and uh, so so you also you know have given various talk uh, kind of related to this benchmark at various conference, um, you know at 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 PyBay twenty eighteen, ReWork Toronto twenty eighteen, and. Reworks and logistical 2019. And sort of uh, in this talk, you, you cover the notion of going beyond the test set accuracy, uh, some of the open challenges in um, interpreting neural networks, and as well as the thoughts on measuring progress in uh, ML interpretability. Uh, I, I was wondering, you know, um, kind of in, in addition to what you already uh, talked about in the previous uh, answers, is um, there anything else that, uh, that you want to add just kind of? Uh, from your you know,
2: yeah, I mean one thing I didn't really talk about and perhaps I alluded to is that we don't always want interpretability. In fact, uh, you can think of interpretability as this extra constraint when posing on the model. So when we train a model now on cross-entropy, we may, we're essentially optimizing for accuracy. We're, we're optimizing for a high performance model. Interpretability or, you know, the other areas I work on, like compression or robustness, that's essentially suggesting let's go beyond just test accuracy. Let's have a model that fulfills multiple desirable properties. The question is, when do you want to place a large weight on interpretability? And a lot of these talks are thinking about that. For example, if you have a model with a lot of historical data, you've got established behavior, you've deployed in various different um, distributions, you may not need an explicit focus on interpretability because you may have enough confidence in the input-output distribution that you have trust in the behavior of the model. Uh, another reason why you might consider placing less weight on interpretability if interpretability trades off with other properties that you care about, like privacy. Um, mm-hmm. As someone reached out with an email saying, why don't you just release the weights of the models? That would make it interpretable. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that might compromise <laughs> The reliability the the privacy of the model because once you release the weights it's very easy to craft adversarial text to fulfill the main model and so these are all considerations that we have to take into account and so i think that my main uh point that it, for people who are interested in interpretability research is to stop treating it like a binary criteria like to stop treating it like oh it's interpretable it isn't interpretable in fact uh there are degrees of interpretability and there are degrees to which we place a weight on this constraint and that will depend upon the task whether it's in a sensitive domain or not and it will also depend upon the the historical behavior of the model how confident are we given how we've seen this perform in many different settings um so that's that, uh, that is a lot of the topics that I have talked about because uh, there is no finish line. Uh, if you think about it, it's not, as if we're gonna, <laughs> it's not as if we're gonna develop a method where we say, okay, we're done here, this is interpretable, signed off. It's more that you're providing degrees of intuition and how much you care about providing that intuition will depend upon the problem.
1: I see, so it's, um, it's very domain dependent, right? Um,
2: precisely and, and in th- addition to that it's very dependent on other circumstances uh about what else you care about
1: i see and you know just just, just curious you know um, so you mentioned that the let's say for highly sensitive tasks you you know we, we need the model to be interpretable and we need we need that sort of degree um like a spectrum right uh, and um so you know for example for, for accuracy we, we had like you know uh using using that as an evaluation matrix do we have any sort of uh uh, you know evaluation matrix for 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 interpretability uh, i guess in addition to to the benchmark do we have like a number i guess um that you know an a researcher can say that hey uh you know with this threshold obviously it's not binary, but like I'm just curious for someone who are uh, not kind of familiar with, with um, some of the work that you have done uh, in, in this domain yeah
2: So the way that it's typically measured is twofold. So one is the meaningful part, and that's typically measured through human studies. So does the human actually find this meaningful? You know, how does this impact? How are they using this interpretability method? The second is to measuring reliability, and a lot of my work has been on that. So a lot of the measures I propose would be measures you would try and uh, use to evaluate whether your interpretability method is actually reliable. And there's a lot more of work being done in that direction now. Um, but that's probably what you would use in terms of like a, a, a way to measure how well this is doing relative to others. We normally in interpretability measure in terms of points of failure, as well as in terms of uh, how the 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 meaningfulness to the human. I will tell you one metric that I'm a little grumpy about that is used. Um, so there is a lot of focus on a method which is to, which measures the object localization of the saliency method, meaning that uh, it what it's really trying to do is it's saying that the saliency method is good if it identifies the pixels as important that are on top of the object of interest. So um, Actually, I'll ask you. So what could be a potential issue with this method?
1: So just want to recap. So you said um, the object location within... uh, Yes.
2: So it scores the saliency method as higher. If the pixels that are on top of the object of interest, so say it's a cat, and the saliency method identifies as important the pixels on the cat itself, even though the cat is pictured in, in, uh, in a... Ah, uh, indoor on a city or a, a bench. Uh, it the main pixels which are important are concentrated on top of the cat, um, a, and then it says, "Oh, this is a great saliency method." Versus if a saliency method has what what is called diffuse attribution, so it's scoring highly the bench and not just the cat; it's scored lower.
1: Okay, I, um, does it does it depends on sort of the quality of the data?
2: interesting okay what
1: no. do you mean by that you say like for example for, for for low low resolution images maybe the object is not um, visible or it's sm- maybe the model is not very attentive to to that particular pixel because the quality is already bad so uh, inherently the, uh, the, the, the 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 ability to detect that that object is already low so I'm just curious that so that that method might not be reverse uh, you know, to, to, to low quality images. Um, that's just one thought, yeah.
2: The main b- deficiency I see with the metric is rather than a model may be a p- be paying attention to multiple different factors in order to classify something. For example, take CIFAR, a very popular data set, 32 times 32 uh, images. And take something like uh, ship and plane. So uh, typically uh, versus, for example, I believe there's a truck class. So uh, for a ship and plane, it may default to using the sky or the sea as an indicator for ship. Um, And for the truck, it may then, you know, kind of once it sees there's no blue in the picture, it may say it's more confident that it's truck. So this is what we typically call data leakage. Um, And uh, in those cases, if the model is actually doing this, then the saliency method should show that the model is using the background more. and uh, it's, the reason why I don't like these localization methods is that really a good say and method should just represent what the model is actually doing. And if the model is actually leveraging this background information, it should reflect that. But mm-hmm. there's a bigger problem here, which is that, in fact, humans do this all the time. Like if I had to take a guess and I was quickly looking at an image, I might default to using C or the background being green to say whether it's an animal or a ship. And I think that the presumption that we don't want our models to do this is not well justified. And so in general, this is a bad metric for me because it departs from reliability. Our only goal with the saliency method should be to show that they are in fact uh, explaining the 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 data distribution the same way that the model perceives the data distribution Mm. and there's no constraint that a model can't pay attention to what's in the background so the fact that the presumption is a saliency map shouldn't reflect that is ill-founded so uh, that's an example of a metric that is commonly used for comparing saliency methods which i don't find particularly satisfying
1: just just one interesting note i think i I read a paper a while back on um on, on focal loss, I think uh, that it does the um, it, it put more weights into the the easy example in, in the in the foreground and less weight to the to the background the hard example. Is there a way we we can modify the loss function for <coughs> for the network to kind of pay more attention to the to the background to the foreground the object that we try to 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 detect and if so, in to to what degree that sort of uh, you know, trick that, that, that can help in terms of reliability.
2: Yeah. Oh, I do like that idea. Um, I have not read this particular work, but I think it's interesting, particularly, I think if you do want a uh, explainability method that is focused on the object of interest, it should reflect your choice of architecture. So perhaps what you're suggesting is if we have a focal loss that is instilling this, you know, this, uh, contrast, high contrast between the foreground and the background, then it seems that what would be an intuitive experiment is to expect that a saliency method would then place more emphasis on the foreground. And that seems more reasonable to me because it's actually capturing the underlying dynamics of the model. We're not just imposing it post-training on the interpretability method. Um, but I agree. I haven't heard of much work in that direction, but it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Please share
1: the paper in the afterwards. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Definitely. Okay, so yeah, let's, let's uh, kind of move on from inter- interpretability and kind um, of, um, you know, talk a little bit about uh, your research on motor compression. So, um, one of your papers in 2019 is called the state of sparsity in deep neural networks, which highlights the need for uh, large scale benchmark in the field of motor compression. Um, you know, why is motor compression interesting? And, uh, you know, what are the results from this work?
2: Model compression is interesting for two separate reasons. Uh, first is it's interesting from an applied perspective. There's very few areas of research right now that have such direct impact on the real world. and that is because it's very urgent that we make deep neural networks work in resource constrained environments. The reason why I say this is that, for example, take communities that I grew up in in Africa. Most of the communities I grew up in are on, a, at best, a smartphone, but data is limited. It's not always possible to recharge. Uh, internet connectivity is is sparse, and in those uh, environments, we really want technology that works well in resource-constrained environments and that delivers a consistent experience. And that's why model compression is so interesting from a PI perspective, because really model compression is trying to take large networks and distill the performance quality to a much smaller network. An option this mechanism may be, in fact, distillation from a teacher to a student, but it can be pruning or quantization, uh, and it can be, in fact, designing a compact model from the outset. So something like MobileNet was designed explicitly to be compact so you don't impose compactness as a criteria afterwards. The second reason why this is really interesting is from a theoretical perspective. So the question is why do we need such huge networks to begin with? If after we train a large network we can essentially remove the majority of weights and end up with a sufficient representation, very little decrease to test that accuracy, how is that possible? how can we have a radically different structure and number of weights for comparable test set performance? What exactly are these extra weights being used for? And uh, my work, the first, uh, I guess the first paper uh, was mainly suggesting that we need to measure performance in a more comparable way. And in fact, like what we did was we compared very, very, very theoretically sophisticated methods to beta methods to a very simple method like painfully simple magnitude pruning and magnitude pruning all it says is we're just going to chop out off weights that are below a sort of magnitude uh, and we found that magnitude pruning was surprisingly comparative up until very very high levels of sparsity and this is a good shake-up for the compression field because if magnitude pruning performs that well it suggests that we have a long way to go <laughs> um, and that we we have to think uh, clearly about what all these different methods are providing and what properties they're providing but also it says something interesting about the distribution of weights because what we found was that certain layers are much more susceptible to compression than others. The first layers and the last layers have to be left dense because in those layers, uh, there's very important feature formation being made, feature extraction. So in the early layers, extracting edges without sparsity is important. In the last layers, you really want to keep that intact because that's your pre softmax activation.
1: Talking a little bit about pruning, right? So uh, one of your most recent work in this direction is called Selective brain damage, measuring the disparate impact of motor pruning. So this paper uh, explored the impact of pruning techniques for neural networks trained on uh for computer vision tasks. Uh, maybe maybe you already mentioned it, but uh, you know what are some of the main um, use cases of, of pruning techniques in neural networks and where do you see the research in this domain follows sort of you know in, in, in the next few years?
2: This paper was very fun. It's actually one of my favorite papers because this paper is actually bringing together a lot of my research interests into one. So in this paper, Selective Brain Damage, really what we identified as a problem, we are saying that if you optimize only for uh, for compression, for a compact network, what we find is that a subset of uh images in a subset of classes, a tiny subset, are disproportionately impacted. So even though you're not seeing much change to your overall performance, you're disproportionately impacting this small size of the distribution. The question then becomes, what about this small subset of the distribution makes uh, the the examples far more sensitive to varying the weights? And in fact, uh, it's clear that this this slice of distribution is in the long tail uh, of the data distribution. And most natural data sets are long tailed, meaning that your zip distribution and your long tail uh, includes things like noisy exemplars, unusual vantage points exemplars. And why is this important? Because often the long tail coincides with fairness concerns. Often in your long tail, you have underrepresented vantage points or underrepresented groups. So what we really articulate in this paper is that by optimizing only for compactness, you may incur trade-offs with other properties you may care about, such as fairness. Uh, and by identifying this problem, we then set the groundwork to fix it. Because once you've identified that the subset is more disproportionately impacted, you can leverage it to impose constraints so that you end up with not just compressed models, but you end up with a trade-off that's tolerable in terms of where that impact is is born within the distribution.
1: Hmm, I see. Yeah, and I actually got a chance to kind of listen to your talk. But, uh um, big in twenty twenty, and in which you presented this, this talk. And um, there's also a website we have this, uh, that's sort dis- of display some of the uh, you know P- the PIE the burning identified examples from this work. That uh, you know I could highly recommend people to take a look. Yeah, and, and just curious, you know, given this result, I guess uh, what what could your your next uh, research kind of uh, kind of look like? What 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 is the next uh, direction that you want What's to next?
2: <laughs> uh, so what is uh, taking this conclusion and fixing it. So let's propose some fixes for practitioners who, because c- pruning is so widely used, if a practitioner is concerned they may be imp- impacting fairness, how can they go about identifying it and then fixing it? So that's a big one. The second one is I think that uh, I'm quite curious to explore how we can start uh, with... Uh, sparse networks and how we can avoid training in the first place and how we can identify these pretty identified examples throughout training so there's a, a lot of work there um, but probably the biggest question i'm currently thinking about is all the networks that we've done so far essentially rely on a global gradient update so for example as we train our networks we have a global gradient update to all the parameters in the network and i'm more and more interested in exploring can we use local um, uh, local signals to bubble up a gradient update rather than having it imposed uh, from the top. But that's very early research.
1: I guess just kind of, kind of uh, encapsulating your, you know, your experience with doing research. In your talk, uh, Gradual Learning at the Future of Finance Summit in 2019, you uh, you discussed sort of the three fundamental approach to machine learning impact. So this included, uh, number one is, um, you know, scientific methods, essentially means that approaching a problem with a scientific mindset. Uh, second uh, is the notion of uh, outcomes raiser, which is keeping things simple and justifying additional complexity. And then lastly is sample quality, uh, collecting high quality inputs to have confidence in the outcomes. You know, So can you uh, unpack your thesis behind this talk?
2: This was a talk uh, that I've been meaning to give for a while. And the premise of this talk is that the, 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 problems that we talk about within a research space are radically different from the problems they are encountered by real world practitioners. And that we should not be using the same vocabulary or methodology for both. And we should remind people that it's okay to uh, not use a deep neural network for everything. <laughs> and the premise of that is you start with a hypothesis of what problem are you trying to solve? Like, what is your cool question, and what is the alternative? And hypothesis-driven research is very different from benchmark-driven research. These are both important ways of measuring progress. For a benchmark-driven problem, there's an established metric, and you're trying to just improve upon that metric. For hypothesis-driven research, you start with a question, and you collect enough uh, uh, data to be able to disprove or or affirm the alternate hypothesis and then you proceed. So it's a sequence of questions. Uh, And this is actually very important. The scientific method is very important for real-world problems because in fact a lot of what you do with real-world problems is you're doing feature engineering. Uh, There there is often not sufficient data uh, or uh, the, the the space that you're working in, um, it's not as easy to formulate a mapping that clearly encapsulates that data. Um, and so you need to have a, a conscious element of feature engineering in order to reduce the function space. And feature engineering, if you ask any practitioner, is kind of the bread and butter of what they do. Um, Deep neural networks are entirely different from that, right? Deep neural networks, you're not doing feature engineering. In fact, you're you're delegating to the model the abstraction of the data and the expr- abstraction of the features, um, uh, but. This talk was really about what is realistic and what do we see in the real world. And for example, with Delta and all the nonprofits that's worked with, what do we see there and how they're using data? And this gets to the second component, which is Oakham's razor. And Oakham's razor is really s- saying, keep it seriously simple. You have to justify every additional component of complexity. Uh, and why is this related to the first? Is that If you are working in the real world, not everything is solved by a deep neural network. And in fact, you should have to justify increasing your your modeling complexity from a decision tree to a random forest, to a deep neural network. Because if you've done adequate feature engineering, then your data is already... Compactly represented, and you need less. You 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 need to throw less tools at it in the data modeling phase because you've already narrowed the f- possible function space by encoding a lot of priors by doing the feature engineering. And that brings it to the third point, which is the data itself. So, regardless of uh, how how much data you have, even in the deep neural network regime. Data quantity is usually important. So more data is better than less data, even if that data quality is is mediocre. But if you have a small amount of data, data quality is critical. And I'll give you an example, which is the, uh, the spam, the fraud project that I worked on at Udemy. Uh, There, we didn't have much labeled data. In fact, we had uh, a a huge in-house labeling effort, but because it was so little, it was really critical that our data quality was really high because uh, small fluctuations in quality could have diverged the model. As you get to much larger data regimes, data quality becomes less important because you have aggregate signal but most people are not operating in large data regimes. And so for them, data quality is critical. And if you have to invest your resources somewhere, if you're in the real world and tackling a real problem, the best place to invest is not throwing a deep neural network at the problem. It's investing in your data quality, particularly if it's limited. And by limited, I mean, if you're operating in less than 100,000 rows, or a hundred thousand instances of whatever you're trying to model. Uh, remember, dimensionality is a criteria here because perhaps uh, you you have a hundred thousand images, and that's slightly different. But if you're if your data limited, you have to care about quality.
1: I see, and, Um yeah, I, I definitely include that under the show notes. People get a chance to listen to it and uh, be 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 mindful uh, of uh, the method when solving a um, a real world problem, using, especially using machine learning that you mentioned. You know, besides doing research, you're also very um, actively involved with sort of the machine learning community in uh, Africa, from teaching ML for good in Kenya to, to speaking at deep learning in Daba, from uh, working at Google AI in, in Ghana to even you know, presenting at different meetups in, in Nigeria. So uh, how would you describe sort of the AI community in Africa, in uh, broad, and what are the developments within that community that you are most excited about?
2: Mm, I describe it as on fire. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, a, it's honestly uh, it's hard to express the, the mix of excitement that you have when you go to something like the Deep Learning Adaba or Data Science Africa or you visit Nigeria because uh, these are communities that. As I mentioned, I I grew up in Southern Africa and visiting these communities now is very exciting for me because this is not something I had when I was growing up, this just doesn't exist. But it's so exciting for uh, the attendees coming from different countries, to places like the Deep Learning and Daba, or to, uh, for example, when I was in Nigeria, I spoke at AI Saturdays, you notice two things. So firstly, just intense excitement like from the beginning of the day to the end of the day people are there and they are just just so turned on with the information of like studying the subject and that this is a mechanism for them to control their destiny and I don't say that lightly but I think that coding and technology in Africa the reason why it's so magnetic and it ignites so many people is because it's a way to avoid these macro effects, which dominate a lot of the opportunities which are available for young people. Coding is a way to control your destiny because if you are a talented young person and you invest in coding, you could avoid all these macro effects which are keeping youth unemployment high. You can tap into a global labor economy, uh, and it's based upon your aptitude, not who you know. <laughs> and so that is why we see. Uh, this just huge outpouring of excitement and so many people uh, investing and building these communities and such a momentum. It's like being part of a very distinct period and history where there's this wave and you feel the wave and you feel just this bubbling within everyone. And, and it's, you take a step back and you're like, wow, I'm part of this very distinct moment in history where all these communities are forming that will really change the landscape of who's participating in technology and how they're participating. The other component is I've talked a little bit about who's, who's participating as technology makers, but there's also the consumption of technology. And Africa is also the most exciting place to be because you have people who are using technology in fundamentally a different way. And the reason why that is interesting is is because we have treated Technology and apps, uh, particularly U.S. companies, it's often an afterthought how it's used in uh, Africa and in other places where it's exported, like Asia, like apps are often released in China uh, without being uh, modified enough for the local context. The same in Africa. So, for example, Uber. A lot of when you use Uber in Ghana, it's like, frankly, totally different from if you use it here. For example, Uber drivers in Ghana don't don't want credit cards, but they won't tell you that. They just won't pick you up. And there's all these different nuances, and it really is an opportunity for for local entrepreneurs to come in and provide uh, much more interesting local solutions. And you already see that with competitors in Kenya. But there's two critical things. So one, the investment landscape has not caught up. So a lot of the most active investments are actually coming from China. They're not coming from Silicon Valley. Uh, the second thing is uh, that there's also tricky problems with telecoms. So telecoms in Africa are national for the large part. And so figuring out how you go from success from one African country to another is often as difficult as figuring out how you go from one African country to the U.S. It, it's just the the, the uh, infrastructure may be entirely different. And so that, that needs to be thought about. But these are temporary... A structural problems. There's a huge momentum there for how, how to think about technology and how to use it. And also, uh, frankly, to start treating uh, entire, uh, entire new consumer classes. A lot of what's interesting is how do you unlock uh, consumer and interesting patterns in consumption? Because uh, we typically companies that have gone into Africa have tried to pitch to a middle class, to upper middle class. But in fact, like what we've seen as some of the most effective products have actually unlocked, been something that people truly need, but also unlocked people with very limited income. Um, and, and that's something that frankly has come from local entrepreneurs there who knew that this was an actual need and not from imports.
1: Yeah, I, I can see the, the excitement when you, you know, to talk about some of these developments. And, uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, you know, that community can, can benefit a lot from, you know, local entrepreneurs that like you mentioned, as, but as well as, you know, people like uh, you and uh, an organization like Dr. Analytics who, who provide the support and the information and, and, and the access for them to, to kind of, you know, adapt on their own. So recently, you and your brother started a podcast called Underrated ML, which uh, pitched the underrated ideas in machine learning. Um, What's the idea behind?
2: So the idea was really let's profile some some things which are not surfacing to the top. So let's talk about interesting ideas and this. uh, for the like three definitions of underrated ML, maybe it's you know a classic paper that's being forgotten. Uh, perhaps it's like a very well-known paper, but one aspect of it hasn't really been uh, understood, or the implications of it haven't really been talked about. Or maybe like a true Jane Doe, it's come out recently, but no, no one's really seen it. And this is actually a huge problem in machine learning because. Uh, There's a huge influx of papers, and people have a really hard time keeping up. Uh, For example, since 2009 until 2017, we have 32 times more papers being published to archive each year. So we've gone from less than (laughs) 1,000 to like 30,000 plus a year, which is Just bonkers. There's no way to digest all this information which is being produced. So it's an attempt in a very small way to to talk about that. But really, uh, if I'm being honest, it's a chance to hang out with my brother. So it's very cool. Neither of us were exposed to computer science growing up. Uh, So it's so unexpected that both of us have stumbled into it, (laughs) and it's kind of like we can't quite believe it. Um, We we, we, he also encountered computer science later in life and he loves it and he loves machine learning. And so it's a chance for us to catch up. I, I will say it's not as well organized as your podcast, James. Like I'm very impressed with your degree of preparation. So maybe it's just a, a, an informal chat, but we try and have some great guests on um, and people from the machine learning world who can talk. We invite a guest each episode to pitch an underrated idea. Uh, and we so we have some really cool guests coming up.
1: Fascinating, and uh, I'll be sure to include that in the show notes, so we can take a chance to, to, you know, listen to your show and, and uh, you know, uh, get exposed to underrated um, ideas in machine learning. So, you know, reflecting on your career thus far, how do you think that your, your background in economics contributes to your work in machine learning?
2: I think it does and it doesn't. So, <laughs> So uh, perhaps I'll answer that two ways. I, it's hard to disentangle what is my the element of economics that has influenced it versus what is the element of perhaps my whole career trajectory just being so different that has influenced my outlook. Um, I would say I think that people who come in from very different fields are not bound by some of the inertia or they haven't. There's certain dogma in academia, and particularly if you do a PhD with a certain group, you may have a particular viewpoint, and I think that people who come in with uh, less baggage, I would say, (laughs) uh, often feel more liberated to question or to ask questions. Uh, But in some ways, that's not true as well, right? There's entire, you know, a PhD in some ways, some of my colleagues have done PhDs in entire disciplines like neuroscience, and it also affords them a creative outlook. But uh, what I will say is that economics, what I loved about it, economics at its core is you end up simplifying or imposing a lot of constraints on the data in which you fit a linear model. Like that, This is like one of the, the preferred tools of economists is multivariate regression uh, models, which are simple but interpretable. The main reason is that they're trying to communicate to policymakers uh, what are the weights of each variable. But in order to get to a simple model, you end up making and stating a lot of assumptions about the distribution. And what's interesting about that viewpoint is by stating your uh, assumptions, you engage in a, a critical dialogue about the statistics and you assume statistics are an input distribution, which I think is really valuable. I don't think there's enough use of statistics in machine learning. Uh, the second thing is that Um, economists do care a lot about modeling the but-for world, the world that would have existed if not for this intervention. And there's a lot more of that echoing in machine learning now with causal analysis, which is trying to figure out, if not for this, what would have happened? I'll be honest, I'm not uh, not overly optimistic about but-for world analysis. It is very challenging, and I think it's very challenging even for humans. We're actually very good at simulating what would happen in uh the next few moments like so for example if i i have a cup of coffee here if i dropped on the floor i can simulate what would happen pretty well even if i don't do it but we're actually not very good any further out than that like for example if i that's one reason why we're so reluctant to make big life changes like leave a partner or you know marry a partner or take a job is that it's hard for us to simulate out so Economics has in some ways also made me realistic about what sort of methods do and what don't. But overall, I I think more than anything, it's having been exposed to very different fields. I, I honestly assume that a biologist who comes into machine learning will have a similar creative process of making links. I recommend to any junior researcher or any researcher starting out, it's okay to sample widely early on because ultimately... A good researcher has a few big moments in their career and often they're linked to connecting very different ideas that were never connected before in an interesting way and often that's not the accumulation of some toil it's just an inflection point in your mind where you see something a link that no one else saw before and nothing can prepare you for what 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 makes you see that, if that makes sense. And often it's just the exposure to seeing a bunch of things in different ways that allow you to see that link. In fact, if you look at the history of scientific discovery, So much of big breakthroughs have been having that moment of crystallizing that connection that no one else saw. And so I don't think it's necessarily economics. I imagine that anyone who comes with a multifaceted background uh, is just more primed to see those links. Um, And... I like that it was economics for me because I, I tend to, I still like some of the, uh, the, the columns that make up the economics profession, even though, to be honest, as soon as I touched machine learning, I was like, wow, this is so exciting because it's a much more realistic way of modeling the world. Um, but it's good to have a versatile toolkit.
1: Absolutely, thanks for sharing that. Uh, I, I love how you kind of like, you know, go broad with, you know, all these different examples and, you know, that idea. Learning statistic and having that, that that broad exposure and you know uh, even learning learning causal inference all, all those things that uh, I've been trying my best to kind of learn for myself so I think you know having that sort of realistic mindset and and, and knowledge of a uh, diverse view is certainly something that uh you know uh, that can be your 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 unique insight to to making a research breakthrough that you already mentioned um, and so I guess just to kind of sum it up. You have worked in both Applied MLF at Udemy and now uh, Research ML at Google. So what are the the differences between uh, these two career trajectory? And what could be your advice for people who um, contemplate choosing between them?
2: The key differences are the following. So uh, with Applied, you have you have a very different set of constraints on when you stop working on a problem. <laughs> so firstly, it's not possible often to follow a problem to completion. Often you arrive at a certain point where a solution is good enough and you test it. Uh, and secondly, there are constraints on the complexity because you're often working in a production setting where there's large scale. However, the beauty of it is you have very, very rich feedback loops about your solution. So when I was at Udemy and deploying an algorithm, the most exciting part was having rich A-B testing so that you know what uh, the value of your idea is. In research, it's a little different. So in research settings, you do get to follow a problem to completion. And you uh, you have a sandbox where you can try extremely complex uh, solutions. And the idea is you're pushing forward the frontier of knowledge as a whole, which justifies this complexity. the perception of what ideas are valuable is much more uh, hard to quantify in some ways because rarely does science do a stepwise progression of Often it's accumulation of small ideas over time and so you never get the satisfying A-B test that tells you that you're the best. <laughs> in fact, uh, a lot of it is the nuance of uh, enough people believing that this is a promising direction and the rigor of your approach. And uh, that's slightly different. And I I think it's uh, one thing which uh, I would say is, uh, it depends on your temperament as a person to some degree, because there's a lot more ambiguity in research. And there's a lot more sense of, you have to have a, a defined sense of a research agenda, and articulate, are you working on important questions? There's, I sense that in research, the core problem right now is too many people are optimizing for a publishing process rather than choosing to work on the fundamentally important ideas. And part of that, I sense, is that there's not the quick feedback loops of A-B testing. So people rely on these publishing feedback loops. And that's often not aligned with what's the right questions to work on, which may be a longer time scale. Uh, what does that mean for who chooses to work on what? I would say the most important thing if you're starting out your career is frankly just work with people who are much smarter than you. There's actually not a wrong answer. (laughs) I think my career is a testament to I was lucky enough at every single one of my jobs to work with people I consider to be smarter than myself, and that is really the only criteria that you should look at for your first job is make sure that you are not the expert. Make sure that you are working with people who are have knowledge to give and are working in an environment where they're invested in your success. Uh, beyond that, I, I would, say that a career is long. Um, and so whether you choose to apply first, there's good lessons there. Whether you choose to do research first, there's really good lessons there. Um, I'm glad I did both. And frankly, I, I think I'm unusual in that respect, because most people of brain have done one the entire career. Um, but sample widely. Uh, and the only definite rule I would give is don't work in a place, particularly early on in your career, where you are the font of knowledge because <laughs> there's too much to learn. And uh, you have to be, if you don't feel humbled and if you don't feel like you're uh, almost drowning early in your career because you feel so overwhelmed by everything, then you're not growing fast enough. Um, and that's the most critical piece is you have to feel like you're repeatedly being thrown into the deep end um, in order to, to really jumpstart.
1: Awesome, really appreciate you sharing that uh, professional anecdote um, and, and, and insights from, you know, the, the, the difference between those. At this point our conversation, I want to move on to the closing segment, in which I'm going to just, you know, ask you like three rapid fire questions, and you can, uh, you know, give uh, tactical advice for, for the audience who are seeking them. Does um, this sounds good?
2: Yeah, sounds good. It's uh, been a long conversation, James. It's been really interesting. Thank you for preparing all these questions.
1: First question is: Name three people in the machine learning and AI universe whose work you really admire.
2: Mm, so for this one, I'll name people who have been personally meaningful to me. So Dimitri, Aaron, Sammy Benjio, Andrea, From. So these are three researchers who have been my personal mentors, but they're also fantastically disciplined, rigorous researchers. So I would suggest check them out.
1: Second question is that um, name one book that you would recommend for people to develop a better analytical master?
2: So I would say elements of statistics, I believe it's called. Um, it's actually available for free online. So definitely check it out. It has kind of a rigorous underpinning, but also they treat ML specifically. So there's some good foundational knowledge there.
1: And then the last one is that, imagine that you send out a tweet to all the aspiring machine learning researcher on Twitter. What could you tweet about?
2: Oh, I don't have to imagine. So you should just follow me on Twitter. I tweet about machine learning all the time. So it's Sarah Hooker. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I guess like you know, what what is the an example tweet that you're saying?
2: Oh, specifically for people new to machine learning. Yeah. Oh, uh, so I mean, I think the most important thing is to sample widely, talk to a lot of different people, um, but also. Uh, I, I think the most important thing is just to choose one project you want to get started with, because sampling Wiley is actually counterproductive. Um, uh, if you end up just bouncing from course to course, choose a, a, choose a defined project and move towards that goal. Um, that didn't fit in a tweet, so <laughs> I think I need to refine my on-the-fly verbal Twitter skills. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, so I really enjoyed this conversation and learned a lot about sort of your background. In, in economics your your part into uh, engineering your uh, you know your, your research at Google AI in interpretability and motor compression as well as sort of your involvement with the, the greater uh, data for good um, in, and the data science community in Africa uh, I'll be sure to sort of include that all that resources on the show notes so people can happen have a chance to, to get a spell to your part of you and your experience. and I'm sure that a lot of people are going to find find that to be encouraging, um, you know, especially those, you know, early on in the career. Uh, yeah, thank you, Sarah. I appreciate you spending time with me today.
0: Be the be guest. Thank
2: one. you, James. It's been lovely.
0: Well, that's the wrap for another episode of DataCast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us Goodbye for now